Lord God, uh, thank you for your word and thank you uh, for not only the, the content that it contains, but how beautiful it is. I ask, Lord God, that you would help me this morning to communicate its truth and its beauty and its power, and ultimately to communicate the beauty and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask, God, that you would uh, penetrate our hearts and minds with the Holy Spirit, and that you would uh, fill us with a sense of your presence. God, convict us. Convict us in our hearts uh, that would draw us to you, uh, accepting your love and your grace and your, your sacrifice for ourselves. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So it's not uncommon, at least for me, when we're in a, a church gathering um, and there are moms present, it's not uncommon to hear conversations that subtly mask their insecurities about how not great they are as moms. And if you're a mom, you, you know what I'm talking about. And if you're a father or a husband, you know as well. And clearly there are perceptions about what a great mom is. And there are perceptions about who are the great moms. But in reality, Every mom struggles big time, and every mom would, would tell you that. Um, but in weak moments, and this isn't only in regard to our moms, in our weak moments, and maybe more than even just in our weak moments, we, we always have these temptations to compare ourselves with others, evaluating our performance as compared to the performance of someone else, and there's some standard that we have out there. Usually it's if I didn't do this, if I didn't do that, if I didn't do these things and I did those, then I would be great or at least better. Um, but as any situation, when we start comparing ourselves and evaluating ourselves um, as to whether we are great or not, um, generally what happens is that we're also not just comparing ourselves to some standard of generally what we're not, but also uh, to others, to others in our midst that we, that we know um, and that we're close to and that we maybe have some insight into a part of their lives, but maybe not the whole. Uh, but this, this, this constant practice of comparing ourselves with others creates jealousy and fear and insecurity, and those things generally lead to, to anger, and those things usually leads to uh, condemning self-speech or self-talk, uh, and then malicious speech about somebody else that we're not comparing ourselves or that we're not living up to the standards of, or in, or in condemning others that don't match up to us, and then resentment toward those who we perceive as doing well. And behind it all, behind it all is this, this common desire that we have for greatness. And, and it's, it's, it is a good thing, and we're going to see that Jesus um, acknowledges the, the good and the possibility of being great, being great moms, 
all right, or being great at anything. But the, the, but the approach towards what it means to be great and how we perceive greatness um, is completely of another world uh, when it comes to Jesus. You know, we can't, we can't blame our, our moms or our, our dads for wanting to be great. Um, because a lot, at, really at the heart of a, of a mom's desire to be a great mom is, is the adequate care of her children. Um, and the painful thought about somehow affecting uh, your kid in, in a way or your kids in a way that, that ultimately brings them harm or damages, damages them is just, it's a, it's a very, it's a hard thought and fear to deal with. Um, and so that's, that's a lot of the motivation behind being great is the welfare, welfare of children. And so, again, it, the aspiration for greatness is not bad in and of itself. It's what it means to be great and how do, how do we become great that, that makes all the difference. Um, what's interesting in, in this is that I, I, I rarely hear dads having that conversation among themselves. Um, that's a different, different subject. Um, but the disciples were really the same. The disciples were the same. Um, they were constantly bickering about who would be the greatest among them? Who's going to be the greatest disciple? And who doesn't want to be a great disciple of Jesus? Who doesn't want Jesus to, to approve of you? Um, and so, again, it's not a bad thing, this desire that we have for greatness, this desire that we have for our kids, other people, Jesus Christ to think, think highly of us and to be considered excellent in his eyes. Um, but it's it's a different path in the, in, the, in, the, in the way of Jesus. Now, to bring us up to speed, the last sermon we did was on the transfiguration, where Jesus changed in his appearance and he appeared with Moses and Elijah, which was a sign from God that indeed this Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one from thousands of years of history and of ancient texts. But Jesus only selected three. Remember, it was Peter, James, and John that went up with him on the mountain. Now, the, the, the story that we're skipping over, because there's just no way that we can cover all 16 chapters thoroughly, the story that we're skipping over this morning um, is the story about the rest of the disciples and what they were doing with the other three and Jesus up on the mountain. The other, the other disciples, the remaining nine, were trying to exercise a demon, trying to exercise an evil spirit uh, that had possessed a child and it had been possessing this child for, for many years. And so Jesus and the disciples, the three, Peter, James, and John, come down off of the mountain um, and, you know, those three experienced this great thing with Jesus. And Jesus even kind of gave them a secret that they were supposed to hold on to. Don't tell anyone about this until after I have risen from the dead. And so these three come down off the mountain with this great experience of Jesus and a secret. And the other nine have been arguing with the scribes about why they were not able to exorcise the demon from this child. And Jesus comes down and he, he, he visibly and audibly expresses 
his impatience and frustration with the disciples. And he literally says, how long am I going to have to put up with this generation? And so if you're those nine disciples, <laughs> Jesus has, it looks like Jesus has showed them special attention. It looks like Jesus thinks of them as more approved. And here we are as a bunch of failures, these other nine. And so the next story begins, the next story begins with the disciples arguing about which of them was the greatest. So turn with me to Mark chapter 9, verse 33. We're going to go through verse 50. And they, the disciples with Jesus, came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, most likely the house of Peter, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking with him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John, which was one of the three that went up to the mountain with Jesus, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. See, in that, that last verse, be at peace with one another, ties this whole bunch of stories together. And I'll be honest with you, this, this little section of these various, what seem to be random stories is a beautiful piece of literature that uh, pulls us into really what it means to be great 
in the eyes of Jesus. So we, we come to this um, instruction of Christ around this scenario where the disciples are worried about their greatness or their lack of greatness. And I want to draw out three things. Jesus gives us instructions on how to be great. We have to value the least of us. So these are three V's. Since I'm not using slides, I need to give you helps to remember the points. So three V's this week. We need to value the least. We need to validate the most. And we need to vanquish sin. We need to value the least. We need to validate the most. And we need to vanquish sin. So what does it mean to value the least? Well, Jesus says we must be, if we want to be great, he's not saying stop being great, stop wanting to be great. He says if you want to be great, you need to be the last of all, you need to be the servant of all. You know, I was thinking when I, when I take the kids and the family somewhere, um, if we know where we're going, generally I'm in the back, all right? If we know where we're all headed, I like to be in the back because I can see everybody, which puts me in kind of a, a protective place. You know, I can see what, what Ann and the, and the kids are doing, and I, I like to be in the back. That's my responsibility to, to protect and to take care of and to oversee everybody. If I'm in the front, if I'm in the front, I can't see them. I don't know where they're at. I don't know if they're following me. I don't know if they're safe because I can't see them. If I'm in the front, wanting to be the first one to arrive at wherever it is that we're going. The only two instances where that's not the case is at the state fair and on bike rides, where we don't know where we're going. Bike rides, so if we're going to cross traffic or if we have to make a decision about where to go, I need, I need to be in the front. And then Anna usually picks up in the back, and so the kids are between us, and so they're kind of surrounded by us as their parents. And at the state fair, it's, we have the last two times we have gone to the state fair, we have gone on the day that set the record for the most attendance. And so it's always just crazy. And I take the lead because you've got to kind of push and shove and you just expect everybody to follow, but then you're constantly turning around to make sure everybody's there. But they're not happy with how I generally lead because you have to just sit, stick together so tight and they get, will get lost or they'll get cut off or go different directions, and so it's impossible to lead well at the state fair. That said, generally, when we're going together somewhere as a family, I like to be in the back. I like to be last. Jesus' use of a child is a metaphor, is a metaphor. He's not talking about child evangelism. He's not talking about youth ministry, okay? He's talking about what is perceived in the culture to be the least of among, among them. Okay, as adults, when we think about children, they have the least to offer us in terms of advancing our own selfish pursuits. As children, they, we, as parents, as adults, we have to literally pour our lives into our children. Everything, I mean, 
Our bodies, our money, our time, our energy, our years are given to our children. And when we become grandparents, you know what? We have these generations because grandparents need to help their kids be better parents. All right, so that once you have gotten rid of your kids, you've realized how much better of a parent you could have been. And then you're supposed to pass that knowledge unless your relationships with your kids are so, so destroyed by that point. But the ideal is that you have an ability as a grandparent to help your sons and your daughters be better parents than you were so that each generation gets a little bit stronger. That's, that's the idea. You grow up to be a parent, to raise kids, to replace you. You give your lives for your kids. Then you're a grandparent. You give your lives to your kids for their kids. And if we don't see greatness as the giving of our lives for the good and betterment of others, we will never be great in the eyes of Jesus. See, we generally see people as a means of improving our own lives. Now, if we think back to the story that we didn't cover, <laughs> where the disciples are trying to exercise this demon from this child, you know, Jesus says, you know, Am I, am I ever going to be rid of you? <laughs> and he's very impatient with them. And at the end, the disciples are still completely confused as to why they couldn't exercise this evil spirit. And Jesus says, well, it is only through prayer and fasting that these kinds of demons can be exercised, that these kinds of evil spirits can be vanquished. And, you know, we read that story and you're like, oh, okay, how do I discern? When I, when I run into somebody with an evil spirit, you know, and we see the text there kind of as a strategy on how to exercise demons. You know, but that's not at all what the text is about. What he's saying is this. If you don't approach your ministry in the humility that requires prayer and fasting, you will be ineffective. And see, the disciples, because this, it's, it's couched in these narratives around who is going to be the greatest. And the disciples viewed their role in ministry as something that was exalting to them. Something that set them apart. Something that made them great. And so their approach to exercising the demon from this child uh, was a part of this mentality. We're going to be great because we can exercise demons in the, name of, in the name of Christ. And you remember in one of the gospel narratives, I don't re we haven't covered it yet in Mark and I can't recall the reference to it, but, but you remember that Jesus sends them out to, to preach the gospel and to heal people and to cleanse them from evil spirits and they came back exalting in the power that they had. And Jesus says, listen, don't exalt that you have power. Exalt that your name is written in the book of life and that you are a child of God. Ministry power it's not something to exalt in and to think of yourself as great through. See, they weren't viewing their ministry for the service of others. They were viewing it for the service of their own greatness. And that's why they weren't able to exercise that evil spirit. That's what being a parent is about. 
I'm going to give my life for my children. They're not here to make me great. And that's what ministry is about. The people that we serve are not here to make me great. They are, they are here for me to give my life for, for their, for their growth in the faith and in God. And when Jesus says, you know, if you, if you need to receive, you need to receive one such as this child. You know, when we were throwing a, we had a, a party earlier this um, spring. It was a fundraiser for the, for the Southwest High School. Uh, and, and the principal of the high school and his, his wife and some other kind of high-profile people at the, at the high school and in the fundraising circles signed up to come to the fundraiser, that, to, the, to the party that we were putting on. We donated a pizza party and 40 people signed up for it. And it was like, whoa, the principal. And Southwest is a great high school and the principal's a highly regarded man. And, you know, you think of having these, these guests with the high-profile names you want to put yourself around those who are great. And what often happens is Jesus has a number of parables about this, is that we tend to neglect those who we don't consider great. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, you need to receive those. You need to show hospitality to those that the world does not care about, to those who are in need, to those who don't have the high-profile names. And then we get to the next story, and, it's, and, and John, the beloved disciple, author of the fourth gospel, he says, you know, Jesus, we, we saw this guy that had the audacity to exercise demons in your name. And Jesus is like, don't tell him to stop, man, that is great. Now, think back. Just a few stories, again, we didn't cover this one, but the disciples failed in the exercising of demons. And here they saw somebody being successful, and they got jealous, and they got upset, and they said, you stop doing that. You're not one of us. You're not one of us. And Jesus is like, why, don't tell them to stop. That's a great thing. It's a great thing. In fact, if, if someone is doing as little as giving you a drink of water because they claim the name of Jesus, throw out the exercising of demons. If somebody who claims to know Christ and on behalf of Christ is assisting in the progress of the gospel by offering you a glass of water, you, you need to know that God looks highly upon that little act of service of giving you a drink of water. And see, and the disciples are showing contempt and disdain for this great act of exercising a demon from a person. Why? Well, because they see that their ministry role is exclusive. It's exclusive. And so Jesus is saying, listen, if, if they're in my name, validate them. Don't, don't denounce them. Don't criticize them. Don't tell them to stop. 
And this is a very, and, and it's, you know, right after they've discovered that Jesus is the Christ, we, we enter into this path of, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this is the real big first lesson. This is the real first lesson. If you are going to be a follower of Jesus, you have got to give up on this internal desire that is based on jealousy to be somebody and to make your own name. See, it is very easy in religion and spirituality and in our following of Jesus to make ourselves exclusive. We can do it with doctrines. Oh, we believe this, and this is more more biblical and more righteous, and Jesus likes us better because we have these certain doctrines. Or we can do it with methods. We're more effective because we're doing house churches, or we're more effective because we've got a great band, or we're more effective because, you know, you guys are aware of it. This is what evangelicalism and Catholicism and mainline product, every tradition within Christianity does this and has for centuries. We look at fruit. Oh, we are a church of thousands, or we are a church of hundreds, and you're only a church of tens. You get to the book of Revelation, and the two churches of the seven that Jesus evaluates the most highly are small and poor. They've been the most faithful. So we can take doctrines, we can take methods, and we can take fruit, and we can set ourselves up. And these things matter. It's not that doctrines don't matter, or that our methods of ministry don't matter, or that our fruit doesn't matter. It's not that those things don't matter. It's that they are not determiners of greatness. That's what we do with these things. We use them to elevate ourselves and to disdain and, con- and condemn others. So they are not They are not to be used for determining how much Jesus likes us or not or how much Jesus favors us or not. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, do they they proclaim my name? If so, don't make them your enemy. Don't make them your enemy. Paul said the same thing. I don't care whether people are preaching Jesus out of selfish motives or sincere motives. If they're proclaiming Jesus, I'm thankful for that. If they're proclaiming Jesus, I'm thankful for that. We're called to work for those in our spheres, in our spheres. And generally, there's plenty in our spheres to fill fill up all of our time and our energy and more so. Just focus on what Jesus has given you And Jesus has given other spheres to others, and if somehow you can help them, or they can help you, great. But there's no need to make them your enemy out of a desire to be exclusive and to be considered great in your own eyes. You see how these are all tying together? Don't try to destroy something that's drawing attention from you. See, again, the disciples are coming off of this failed exorcism, and here's a guy being successful, and they got jealous. Jealousy and a pursuit of greatness cannot be our motivations for ministry. And here at the front end of them being disciples of Jesus, it's the, it's the first thing he's wanting them to really get down. 
And he goes into this list then in, the, in terms of vanquishing the threats, okay? So we value the least, we validate the most, and we vanquish the threats. Now, you know, this is a, this is a tough passage. If you're going to cause someone to stumble, who's the someone to stumble? Well, it, it, it could be the child, the least, okay? Or it could be the one who is coming and offering just a cup of water as their service of ministry. And in both cases, it's the disciples looking down upon the insignificant things. And see, what Jesus is saying is, listen, if, if, if you are going to engage in ministry and you're looking down upon people, you have a very high likelihood of shipwrecking the faith of those people who are the least or who are offering what appears to be small because you're so great and mighty. Disciples, you are going to be the 12. And again, as we will see in the book of Revelation, their names are going to be written on the foundations of the city of God. They are going to be great. <laughs> but Jesus is saying, listen, if in the rise to your greatness because of me selecting you as my disciples, you look down upon the least or you look down upon those who are bringing a little to the service of God, you're going to shipwreck their faith. And it's better for you to just tie a millstone, okay, which is this big, heavy mill a big heavy stone, this big rock that, that was used either by hand power or animal power uh, to turn on a lower millstone, and they would grind grain, Very huge, hundreds of pounds. Throw yourself into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck because that would be a better judgment than the one that is going to befall you. And so he gets, so, so what does it mean then to vanquish these threats? And I don't want to use the word sin because the word sin in this case is not, uh, it's, it's, it's a little too narrow. What Jesus is saying is, is um, if, if you would be the cause of somebody shipwrecking their faith, or if, a, if your hand or your eye or your foot is a cause for you to shipwreck your faith, it is better to be without an eye, to be without a hand, to be without a foot, or to be thrown into the sea with a millstone wrapped around your neck than to suffer the judgment of hell. Why judgment? Why judgment? So in your pursuit of greatness, you're going to hurt others. There's judgment that is coming. And Here's what he's saying. If, if you discover that in your service to God, your real motivation is your own greatness, and you don't somehow see that and repent of it, but continue to see ministry or the service of people as a means for your own greatness, what he's saying there is, you know, if that's what your real motivation is, you may not, you may not have God at all. You may not know God at all. And if, if in your own path then, okay, because something becomes more important than a sincere devotion to God, your own greatness. And so your hand or your eye or your foot, if, if in the pursuit of God you, you see that something is hindering you, 
or shipwrecking your faith. If you don't make an effort to get rid of it, then what's, what's ultimately happening is that it's, it's the, the, your pursuit of God is revealing what your most important things are. And if you ever get to a point where you're saying that, no, my pursuit of greatness or, or what my eye sees that I want is more than following God, then what, what's really happened is that something has become more important than your devotion to God. Something has become more important to God. Something else is God to you than God. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If that is the case, then, then there really isn't a sincere devotion to God first and foremost. Whatever it is that your eye or your hand or your foot draws you to, that's your God. And if that's where you stay, then judgment is before you because what it really reveals is that you don't have the Spirit of God present within you. You don't have a love for God as your primary motivation, which means that you don't know God at all. And so judgment awaits. Hell awaits where the worm never dies and the fire is never extinguished. So, little excursus, what is hell? What is hell? So, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the debate that is going on around hell, but there are two views. Well, there are probably a lot more than two views, but there are two dominant views. The traditionalist view, and we're going to cover this more when we get to the book of Revelation and actually spend a little bit of time preaching and teaching on it. The, tra the traditionalist view is that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment where you are alive in a, some sort of a place absent from the presence of God. Some believe that it's a, literally a fiery pit. Um, most scholars across the spectrum see that as metaphorical. But regardless, it is some place of eternal conscious torment where you live forever in torment, right? That's called the traditional view. The other view is called annihilationist, okay, where when it speaks of eternal destruction, it is a destruction that occurs of the person and that, it, that destruction is eternal. It's not eternal conscious torment, it is they have been destroyed, their life has been taken from them, and they will never live again. That's called annihilationism. And this text is inconclusive as to what it means. Most scholars, even, even conservative evangelical scholars will say, uh, this text is not a good text to base either side of that doctrine on. And if you look through, and we're going to spend some time on it when we, when we cover the book of Revelation, which is one of the books I think we're going to cover next, if not next, uh, shortly, sometime in 2017. Um, if you look at the texts, if you look at the texts, um, it is, it, you cannot, it, it is very difficult to come down exclusively uh, in, in one position. And I'm not going to tell you where, where I'm at. I'm in the process of 
thinking about this because I never studied it and held to a traditionalist view, and I'm not so sure that that's a biblically justifiable view anymore. But what Jesus is saying is, listen, whether you believe it's eternal conscious torment or whether you believe that you will be destroyed forever, it's not a good thing. If you like living and want to live forever, then you're going to want to pursue Jesus. You're going to want to pursue Jesus. And you have to be willing, and what Jesus is saying is, give up on your claims to making your name great. Give up on your own desires. And I mean, Jesus said this when he, was gonna, when he told the disciples that he would be killed and then resurrected on the third day. You have to die to yourself. You have to die to yourself. And then he concludes with this weird <laughs> metaphor of the salt and I'm not going to take the time to explain all of the salt connections there because it, it just really gets kind of convoluted. But the big idea is this. Salt was used in the sacrifices of Israel prescribed under the law of Moses. And they were to salt the sacrifices. And what he's saying is that you, your lives have to be continually characterized by sacrifice. Not by pursuing your own greatness, but by giving all that you have. By giving all that you have. Pouring it out. Pouring it out. So you, be salty. <laughs> be salty. If your lives are characterized with the sacrifice of service to others, not trying to use them to make your name great, but giving your life for their improvement, which in Jesus' eyes then is following his commandments and loving one another, which is then filled out in a much more robust way in the New Testament letters of Paul and Peter and Jude and James and the others. And you can say, okay, yeah, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna be a servant. I'm gonna be a servant. But you can't do it. You can't do it. And even if you see Jesus' life as an example, and some believe, some believe, I've got a close friend who believes this, that Jesus was our example in giving his life, sacrificing it for the good of others. And if we can make the similar type of commitments and live our lives sacrificially, then we will be saved and of God. And so Jesus is our example, and our lives then are going to be sacrificial. We're going to strive for sacrifice, and if we can do it, then, then we've made it. But that's not the teaching of the Scriptures. That's not the teaching of the Scriptures. Jesus' life was indeed an example. It was indeed an example, and we are to follow him in a life of sacrifice and of giving of our lives, ultimately to death if necessary, in devotion to God. But there has to be a recognition that we cannot do it in and of ourselves without the power of Jesus present within us. Without the power of Jesus present within us. And that is where, you know, when he says, if your hand or your eye or your foot, if, you, if you're living life and, you're, and you think that you're living for me, but you come to this place and you can't seem to stop sinning, you can't seem to stop something that your hand or your eye or your foot is leading you to do. 
It's because you're pursuing it without the power of God available to you. And so you desire to be great and to make a name for yourself, which is ultimately the desire to be God yourself. Just like all the disciples. And, and, we're, and if, in a passage or two later, and we're not going to cover it because we've already covered it today, John and his brother James are going to be arguing about which, which of them gets to sit at Jesus' right hand. They, they wanted to place themselves into a high position, which is ultimately the, the desire that we have to be God ourselves, which takes us back to the garden where man and woman They did not want to follow God. They wanted to be their own God. And that's really what is at the heart of all of our sin. We want to make our name great. We want to be our own gods. We want to do what we want. And we will make our own lives. And we will eventually get to the point where we can see that 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 just doesn't work. We become self-destructive. And then our consciences tell us that we need God. And then we have to recognize that, yeah, it's not just a following of God and His laws and commandments. It it is the fact that we need God. We need the power of God present within us to live a life of sacrifice that Jesus is calling us to. And that's why why Jesus took, okay, in, in our pursuit of our desire to be God, we sin and we offend God, and then judgment, as he said here, judgment is required. Because God is a just God, and he will punish evildoers because they are deserving of death. We are all deserving of death, the Scriptures say. Well, Jesus took death upon himself to pay for our death, and then he rose from the dead to prove that he alone has mastery over death, he has mastery over judgment, and that if we simply believe if, if we believe that Jesus' death covered our debts to God and took our punishment, if we believe that Jesus' life is life over death and the promise of life over death, if we believe that for ourselves, then the Scriptures say from the law on that God will transform our hearts of stone and hardness and turn them into hearts of flesh and He will put His Spirit within us giving us then the ability to obey his commands and to follow him to death if needed in a life of sacrifice for the good of others. And so the the gospel of Mark just keeps pressing us towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a method on how to exercise demons. It's not good teachings for us to follow in order to to follow God. It It is the revelation that we need an inner transformation of ourselves and we have to deny ourselves and to believe in the gospel so that we can have the power of God within us through Christ. Let me pray. Lord, we, uh, we are, uh, what a beautiful passage and how all these stories are connected and really subtly pointing at, in a very profound way, the condition of our hearts. I pray, God, that in, in whatever ways that we compare ourselves, that you would help us to see that, that sin is a reality in our lives and that, and that um, you've forgiven us of them. And that, and that life over those sins is possible through 
the belief that Christ has covered them in His death and resurrection, and that we can trust in that, which gives us peace because we don't have to compare ourselves. We don't have to compare ourselves to other moms or other dads or other ministries or whatever other means that we have for evaluating ourselves, but that we are in Christ and Christ alone, and that is enough, and that is all things. In your son's name, amen.